Welcome to the Karmic Capitalist Podcast. Stories of companies that are doing capitalism better. Carl Farrow is the founder and CEO of geothermal company Serafi. In the Mexico City earthquake of 2017, he volunteered to help the rescue efforts, and he bought his hard hat and high-vis vest as he rushed to the scene. His construction skills were in demand, and with scarce resources, he led a team to demolish unsafe buildings. He was recognized with a medal for his service to Mexico City's civilians. I dived into that story as it gave so many clues to the main discussion on how and why he founded and how he leads the startup to accelerate our move to clean energy. It's an enormous task. Hello and welcome to the Karmic Capitalist episode where today I'm delighted to have with me Carl Farrow, the founder and CEO, one of the founders and CEO of uh, Serifi Energy. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Carl. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Carl, we're, we'll go into the story and everything in a sec, but first off, what, what is Serifi and what does it do? Well, I think, I, I mean, we... I think the simple term is is that we see ourselves as a company that really wants to change the way that energy is used and uh, and available to to everyone. Uh, we have a sort of energy transition process going on around us where we're sort of stepping out of a fossil fuels era, you know, for the last hundred plus years into sort of a green environment. And Serafi really is 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 really about making that transition a lot more, should I say, sustainable, base load and and available to everyone. Uh, taken advantage of that also 100 years of fossil fuel experience that we've had, you know, because otherwise it's uh, it's going to be a hard slog. So we've got to sort of make a transition which enables, you know, the fossil fuel industry to actually be part of a transition, not feel alienated, alienated from a transition. How does that translate specifically to for Serafi in terms of what it does? Yeah, so Serafi, really, we, the founders themselves come from an oil and gas background. We've all got um, a lot of experience from, you know, right from exploration through to project delivery and uh, and, and beyond that, commercialization of products and all these sorts of things. And being able to pull on them expertise and skills in a space where we can then, uh, through the geothermal side, i.e. accessing heat from the ground effectively and commercializing that heat in various different forms, whether to be heat directly for you know domestic residential use or heat for industrial processing and processes um, that are more in the industrial environment or with higher temperature heat even to power generation, which can then be considered baseload energy for you know, direct power use or for using power for things like, you know, green hydrogen production, etc. So Serafi itself is really, we're about taking that heat from the ground and making it commercially available in multiple forms to multiple different existing platforms that are out there. So we are, we do see ourselves as an energy company. We are an energy business. We want to grow ourselves into an energy business. I call it utility light. We don't want our own assets, but we want our own a chunk of the energy that the assets produce. And we'll do that moving forward through license and type agreements from the technology that we produce and bring to market to actually enable this energy to come into the market. So really to scale a space in geothermal and scale a space in a clean energy product moving forward globally, you know, Serafi's not going to do that alone. We need to do that with a whole bunch of collaborative partners so we've focused our niche on the bit we do and the bit we know well, and we've now collaborated with multiple other partners 
using the skills and expertise that they have to then deliver this process moving forward. Brilliant. So we're going to dig in a bit later on on geothermal and what it is, because it's not one that you hear as much about in terms of uh, renewables as as you do uh, sort of solar and wind. And also, obviously, keen uh, as you touched on there to dive into the Serafi business model as well and see and see and see what that look, actually looks like in reality. But always intrigued, Carl, by by founders' roles and how they get to where they get to. What was uh, what what was your road to Serafi? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I started in the industry back in sort of 1985, leaving school as a sort of young lad at then, not really knowing what to do. Uh, I wasn't really uh, the greatest academic at, at school. I mean, I was always very practical, very focused on the arts and music and all that sort of stuff, but not so much on the sort of the academic side. So didn't really know what I was going to do. I always wanted to be in sort of music and stuff like that, but that wasn't, that wasn't, I still, I still play music, but not, not as a professional career. But my father was working in the oil and gas sector and uh, there was an opportunity to come up for an apprenticeship at a local firm that he was working at. And uh, I took that sort of role, which took me on a journey in sort of 1985 through my four-year apprenticeship. I mean, all over the world doing different roles and uh, learning a a hell of a lot in a very short period of time. And, um, you know, right through an engineering office type role through machine shop, through shop floor stuff, and then into supervision and managing various things at a young age, even even offshore, you know, uh, on, on oil and gas rigs. So, yeah, I started off in the drilling sector with this company and sort of moved into more construction after I finished my apprenticeship on uh, sort of um, offshore oil and gas assets. So working in, uh, in, in like an offshore oil and gas maintenance environment, doing sort of turnaround maintenance type programs for assets in the North Sea. Um, um, but then very quickly also moved into European type projects and uh, and other parts of the world. So I was sort of, you know, I went into supervision quite early, around sort of early 20s, uh, then into sort of management, sort of mid 20s. And uh, I sort of set my own, my first business up, business up uh, alone when I was around 28. And uh, that, that business was sold on and, me, and, I, and, and I've sort of moved in that sort of environment and space since then. So, I've always been, you know, heavily involved in in large projects. I've been sort of regional director and sort of country manager and global um, sort of director for various different businesses, you know, starting up businesses and overseas divisions for companies, and and moving into moving area moving them into areas where they sort of new business, specifically Latin America and these sorts of areas where I spent a big chunk of my time as sort of. Um, around that sort of Latin America region and uh, also Spain and these sort of Hispanic-speaking regions. Um, Interesting. I noticed, by the way, along the way, you talk about sort of Latin American regions and, uh, you know, overseeing construction projects and so on. And and along the way, picked up a medalla agradecimiento armada de armada Infanteria Marina. Okay. (laughs) For civilian services to to Mexico. Talk me through that. What was that? Yeah, well, I, I, I've, um, I was in Mexico. I've, I've actually lived in Mexico. My wife is actually Mexican. I've lived in Mexico for a number of years. And, uh, I was actually, um, in Mexico during the 2017 earthquake. And, uh, one of the things I did there is volunteer and spent several days, well, nearly a week actually volunteering on, in, in, uh, in basically a rescue of people in buildings and also taking down buildings that were effectively demolished and, uh, working with the, the Marines and uh, police and fire services and all the different departments of, of them during that process. And one of the guys I got to meet there was, uh, uh, he was a vice admiral um, of the Marina, or the, what they call them, the Marines at that particular time. And uh, he, he um, basically said, 
I want you to coordinate doing this whole, removing this whole building for us um, because you seem to know what you're on about from a construction point of view. And uh, and uh, he put sort of a whole delegation of people underneath me and uh, resources to my disposal and just said, you know, get on about it. So we managed to obviously um, through this process recover and uh, also rescue actually some, some, some people. And um, after a, the end of it, I got invited to a sort of ceremony where um, – I was presented with uh, what they call like a, a, a gracimento. This is, is, a, this is like a thank you award as a, a foreign national and an independent person for assisting in that process. So, um, yeah, quite an honour. Obviously, I didn't do it for that. I done it for the for the ability to obviously assist in the scenario. It's quite a quite a devastating moment in Mexico City, and um, obviously. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite a quite I wouldn't say an experience because nobody I wouldn't want anyone to go through that experience, but it was quite a certainly a, a bit of a, a life changing changing moment for me, putting in in certain aspects of um, you know things into reality. If you realise how valuable your life is and what assets and what you know material things mean at that point, when you suddenly uh, you know in in seven or ten seconds you could lose everything, you know. Um, yeah, but what a privilege to be called on to 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 use real skills for something that is well life saving. I mean, it's uh, yeah, and it's very. I mean, next week is the anniversary. Actually, well, the seventeenth is the anniversary um, of of that, which was when it happened. So it's actually five years ago now since uh, since that happened uh, in the next weekend. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, it's it's quite devastating. But yeah, as you say, I mean, being able to sort of pull on the skills and resources and uh, expertise that you learn over periods, even skills you've forgotten, to be honest. I mean, I was climbing climbing up buildings and helping people rig up cranes and all sorts of things that, um, you know, things I haven't done for years and my legs and bones were aching for months afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's funny that you sort of pulled together and there was myself, there was also a couple of other uh, foreigners that were there, one Spanish guy and uh, uh, and also uh, a guy from Australia that, um, you know, we sort of bonded together very quickly, took a bit of control and uh, really, you know, because we were we knew what we were doing from a civil and engineering and the sort of uh, construction point of view, uh, quickly rallied around and, uh, and got people sort of organised and... And really, I mean, everyone wants to help in that scenario, but the last thing you want is hundreds of people climbing over buildings. You know, you really need to take control and and, and manage the scenario and, and do it methodically, as you would in a real real world construction scenario. You know. So. And you mentioned you mentioned life changing. I mean, what kind of impact did it leave on you? Well, I think I, you don't really know it until uh, several months afterwards. But yeah, I mean, it was quite. Um, I certainly uh, for for I was went through a sort of post-traumatic, I would say, sort of syndrome sort of period uh, without really realising it, to be honest. Um, and the sort of thing that hit me was, you know, you, you're in a you're in people's private lives, you know, you're you're pulling apart a building which um has got everyone's personal belongings and things in there and, and but people have worked for for a for a long time and uh, you're in that environment and, and, and it's you effectively it's just rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But to other people it's all their positions and, and that that's sort of quite an impactful thing that, that sort of hits you after after that and you realise how, you know, vulnerable life is and how you know, quickly things can change from one minute. You know, I was playing golf at the time when uh, it happened um, and I got the call to go and, and, and help. And literally I just left everything and went, you know, it was like, you know, there, it wasn't even a thinking moment. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. my wife said, uh, you know, a friend of ours was a doctor and he was there and said, um, 
you know, uh, is Carl available to come and help? And um, because we uh, we've got uh, the, the Marines here are looking for people who have got construction experience, etc. And uh, um, yeah, I didn't even think about. It. I just left everything there and jumped in a car and, and and bought a hard hat and a vis vest and a pair of boots on the way <laughs> from a from a shop and 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 I was you know safety first and and and, and just literally went and uh, yeah but yeah I think I think these sort of things do train you uh, do do um, train you for these types of scenarios and uh, yeah I, th- I think anyone else would have done the same to be honest I I, I think it's um. It's just a natural instinct that you would do. Yeah, well, and, and, and you say that, and I know you say it honestly and humbly, but I, I think sometimes people don't, and it's I think it is a it is a genuine sort of test of character, and some people will just go, and some people, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, worry about family or whatever, and, and may not, but it is, um, you know, for me, I just look at it, what an, what an incredible privilege, uh, actually. Yeah, and I feel I felt quite humbled afterwards. That the fact is that you know there's a recognition for that, but I mean I don't you know it wasn't the reason why anything was done. Really, uh, it's it's uh, yeah, and I've you know I made some good some lifetime friends now um, from that scenario. That you know we are effectively brothers. You know we've <laughs> we went through a lot together, and uh, you know we we call each other brother now, and uh, we've done a lot of um, things together, which. Um, you know, help to bond the spirit and uh, things together that you wouldn't normally get with normal people. And uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the general inside of of just keeps you going. I mean, I think I spent nearly five days with probably two hours sleep, and the, the adrenaline just keeps keeps you moving forward. And uh, yeah, it's quite quite. Um, you sort of know you're on a mission to do something. And we we actually got a building down, which was a nine floor nine story building, well, a nine story pile of rubble down to ground zero in five days with two cranes and uh you know several hundred people helping with buckets and spades and, and that and uh but you know other buildings around there were just actually left weeks later because they just had given up looking for people but yeah we just made it an effort to to do that and um yeah and i think it was because of that coordinated effort that we we managed to do that sort of in in the time frame we did and i think for that reason we got you know the recognition we did yeah, yeah, yeah. No, brilliant. So, so with that small diversion along the way in terms of your trajectory through Latin America and construction, where did it go from there? Yeah, well, I think you know, when I, like I said, I, I spent a long time in in Mexico working a long time with government agencies when I when I was consulting, um, and uh, I was part of. I worked for Petrofac down there for a number of years, and uh, as part of their sort of, um, they were one of the first companies to take. Uh, Sort of, should I say, the private the private sector um, oil wells away from Pemex and start looking at as an international company to start operating them uh, under a production sharing contract. And I was down there at that time when they were sort of negotiating the contracts and helping them through that. And then I left, and at that time they were just doing the energy transition or energy tran- uh, reform in Mexico. And I got quite heavily involved in that with government, um, both sides of government, both the government directly and also the regulatory side that was being set up. Uh, and through quite a lot of connections there involved in that sort of restructuring and that process. And, and got obviously built a bit of a name around myself, around being the go-to person or a go-to person for people moving into Mexico under the new blocks, you know, the new licitations for um, blocks and uh, onshore and offshore, which they'd done the round ones and twos, so it's actually licensed from around for international players. So, I had a lot of companies coming to me and, uh, and, and working with me um, for asking for advice and, and that. So I built a little consultancy business up around that and then started working with other 
organizations like, um, you know, large uh, investment companies out of New York looking at restructuring debt and stuff for um, power generation projects in Mexico. And one of the big projects I looked at was the first project was a geothermal project. And uh, first time I'd really looked at geothermal, I'd obviously like everyone else, you hear about it, you you know, you know the principles of what it does and what it is, but you know, you think, well, it's not in my backyard because I haven't got a geyser and I haven't got a, you know, this, that, and the other. But yeah, I soon quickly realised that you know, actually, it's it's very much connected more to our oil and gas world than than a, I would say, than a power generation world. You know, it's it's very much a subsurface um, focused business, and uh, really couldn't understand why it wasn't being done more and so i sort of started to delve into it there after afterwards with a bit of fascination around it and then realized it was only like at that time i think 14 gigawatts or something installed in the world and um you know thought well this is ridiculous this is something that could really change the the dynamic in climate change it's base load it's you know it's stuff we do all day in oil and gas drilling wells and holes in the ground so you know why why aren't we doing this anyway so i made a bit of a mission with it went and approached uh got approached by a company in slovakia and started look, working with them on uh, some plasma drilling stuff that they were developing and um i really just got more and more and more involved with it to the point where um in 2020 we we went into covid and uh the r&d company or the company i was working with went into more of a uh, an r&d approach where i was looking at taking them to into a commercial market and uh the commercial side of it sort of stopped so effectively i was you know out of a, a position with them and uh but I still felt there was an opportunity to take this forward as a commercial, but looking at different aspects. And uh, one of the things we had been talking about at that particular time was closed loop and various other things. And uh, I took a team of people, or the team of people that were with me with this company, we all decided to set up Seraphy and focus on the closed loop aspect of it. And uh, we did that sort of in a covert sort of stealth mode um, and for several months and officially launched in um, September 2020. And uh, yeah, we had our second birthday last week. So uh, yeah, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're, we've gone quite a long way in two years. Um, You know, we've, we've taken the journey of a, of a startup, um, but probably a year of that startup journey, we were in the middle of COVID and, uh, you know, we were onboarding people through teams like this, conversations over line and, uh, um, yeah, quite quite a crazy time, but quite exciting as well. Yeah, but a very entrepreneurial approach to setting up a company, I must say. Of <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely. The word mission has come up three times so far today in our, in our chat. Including once when you were uh, yeah talking about the, the experience in Mexico and that you know there was a real sort of mission is is that a drive for uh, for Seraphy? I mean clearly yeah there's a part that is opportunity and I'll like to come back to that in a sec. But it sounds like a driver for you is a mission is a, a mission driven organization. Absolutely, obviously I drive the mission. Um, I think you know you, you know I'm 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 quite a passionate person when it comes to, to delivering something that um, that I want to do. I wouldn't say competitive because I'm certainly not a competitive um, person in that respect, but mission driven, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, if I've set my heart on doing something, it has to be delivered and it has to be delivered right and uh, to the best of the ability that I can do it. And uh, I think that in itself, because of, the, of what we're doing as a company is, is really about, yes, we are, we have a technology, we are trying to impact the effect of carbon removal from the, 
the energy sector. Uh, we are trying to do that as quick as possible. We are trying to do it at scale, but I think it's the bigger mission of the overall impact of what we're doing and that we can do. So it's sort of a can-do attitude, like, you know, that this is no fail and we are going to do this, uh, is, is very much a mission that everyone buys into and everyone, you know, everyone in the organization, I think, has, has got that same passion that, that this can be done and it will be done and it is going to be delivered. And, and I think that's, I think it's quite unique. It's very humbling for me that I can see people that we've onboarded that uh, are not just following a, you know, a, a job title and following a role. They're actually driven by a mission. And, uh, and I think, you know, that oozes from everyone in the company. Yeah. I think I can, you know, honestly say that we've got a team of people that are mission driven and, uh, that they want to succeed and they want, this to work and they want this to be able to be delivered not necessarily f- from the business aspect of it but because it's the right thing to do and the right thing to, that we should all have access to you know it's like you know we should always have access everyone should have access to this energy that's literally sitting under our feet and uh, you know it's it's it, it and and really it should be to the point where it should be accessible to everyone for a relatively you know low cost and a relatively low Local. And I think that's really where we, where we see the mission side of it from is, um, but then you've obviously got the business side of it as well. You know, no, no, no one can stay in, in a business without having a commercial model to make it work. You know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I want to come back to that commercial model in a second. But it, it's interesting when you talk about mission, because one is the, the vision of what it is that we want to achieve and what it is that we want to create and why we're doing it. And that's all well and good, but the reality is you, that you can get very cynical about that or undermine it if there isn't an attitude behind it of, of, of actually getting it done, of going beyond the why. I mean, the everyone, you know, Simon Sinek's book of Start With Why, which everyone's sort of heard about. Sadly, not everyone has read. I mean, I think it's, it's, I always find it interesting. People start with why and then they talk about the why a lot. And very, very few realize that, you know, the book actually isn't just why it's, it's now, what's the how? How do we get there? Because starting with why is all very well and good, but the clues in the word start, <laughs> start with why, and then let's get on to get it done. And one of your core values I noticed was accomplish every goal we set, which I think uh, prob- probably speaks to that. And it's an interesting, actually, you have to be selective about your setting of goals when you're going to accomplish every single one of them. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're, they're always, like I said, they're bold statement. I've always been somebody who tries to set their limit um, as high as it can go and uh, been somebody who tries to over overachieve. And not everyone is geared up to that because, you know, you have a quality of people that some people are very risk averse, very different approach and obviously you know very detailed black and white people technical people don't react like that it's 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 a functional process but i think i think you've got a and i think even people who i work with will will tell you the same that yeah they they know when i say we have to do this we have to achieve that they know that that the i am trying to achieve that but they also know that i'm setting the benchmark to a point where you know that's the sort of the optimum objective but if we also achieve you know 20 percent Below that, that's also really good because I will always set the objectives to the point where they are the sort of the, the cream on the cake type approach. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and that, that's really where, and I think you have to do that to some, some, some ways. You have to sort of drive a, a mission to a point of, uh, of, of over succeeding. Um, because at the end of the day, if, if you don't allow contingency in there to, for the bits that maybe don't work, you, you, you you're always going to fail. You know, so the the point of trying to over succeed is always to make sure that you come in at the sort of top end of your ability to deliver, and and that's really where 
I think everyone, and, and you know, it takes a little bit of time for people to understand that and people to understand me and work with me. If you speak to people in the organization, you know, they're, I'm, 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 I'm always, they'll say I'm the guy that's out there all the time with the, the crazy ideas and that. But I think you have to be in some ways to be able to, you know, set the benchmarks of where you want to go to and achieve, um, but also deliver them. And, and you know, the important bit is the delivery and, you know, achieving the goals. So yeah, you can have the big roadmap of, um, the long, you know, the, the journey to get from A to B or A to Z. And we, you know, we, we always don't know the route to get to A to Z. You know, we might, some of that we're learning on the way and, and, uh, provide, but providing the actual A to Z map is, is fairly robust, which ours is, you know, we've got no reason we shouldn't achieve it. Um, we might take some deviation along the way, you know, getting there, uh, and, and it might be good and it might be bad, but, you know, we will get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's it it is. It's I think it's it's that clarity of direction, which is why I love the sort of the mission approach. It's um and not not for nothing is the military concept of mission command, which is yeah we have absolute clarity about the mission, but actually how we get there is going to be figured out more a little bit more real time and a little bit more when you're at the coal face or actually facing the enemy or whatever it is, because that's that's where the decisions matter. Um, but that's why we've got a um, five-star general, three-star general is on our advisory board, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but, um, no, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things about mission is also making sure that, you know, that you yourself are not asking anyone else to do something that you personally wouldn't be able to deliver or achieve, you, you know, in, in that way. And I think that's something else I've always been very conscious of is that I wouldn't put anyone else in a, position asking them to do something I wouldn't be prepared to do um, with all the ability to do obviously uh, to do myself and and I think the other thing as well with the mission side of it is we you know we are looking at our approach and projects the same in some respects like a military type operation that you know we have to succeed it's not about winning the war on day one it's about winning all the different little battles that overall help us win the war and the, you know if we look at it like that basically i mean the war on climate change is not an easy war it's a huge massive objective in front of us and it's going to take more than one company like seraphy to win that war so you know what we're trying to do as a company is really just say well you know we know what we're doing we're chipping away at our bit to do it and uh we're not saying that anyone else doing what they're doing is wrong. We're just saying that this is the way we're going to do it and this is the way we want to approach it, um, given the knowledge and the skills that we have and know. You know? I was interested in, in digging a little bit into the mission side because, as I say, it was a word, it's a word you're comfortable using. You've used sort of two yeah. or three times. So I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is clearly a thing and it, you know, and it comes from the leader. But the other, the other side of that, and when we talk about making it happen, clearly, certainly within a business or, or commercial concept is that the, there has to be a business that actually yeah, pays for that and allows it to happen. So on, on that side of thing, what actually is the business model of Serifi? So, I mean, we, like I said earlier, I mean, our plan is or our strategy is really to enable access to the resource, uh, resource obviously being the heat and the ground. That resource can then be used for multiple different applications. And the enabling part of that is for us is one, to be able to move that heat from the subsurface to the surface. So we have a, a technology designed for that, which is uh, effectively a licensable product, uh, a proprietary licensable product. And then we have a software system built to actually work out and establish what the best use of that energy is going to be i.e. the enabling factor to make it commercial, i.e. 
getting that heat to a market that actually has a commercial basis at the end of it to actually then commercialize the product. Uh, whether that be low-grade heat, medium heat, high-grade heat, power, etc., you know, all of that can be modeled in the software. And both these, I mean, we we look at it, we, we call our downhole heat exchanger or our sort of downhole technology Seraphie Well. We call our software system Seraphie Pro. We call the solution that comes out of the software the end result, i.e. the business case and the opportunity Seraphie Gen. So we're generating an opportunity or generating a solution. And then we have other bits like Seraphie True, which is our uh, heat modeling uh, package that we've designed, which actually models thermal resource on on wells. So we can actually go onto existing wells, model a resource, and actually quickly give a allocation of what that resource could be used for and how much of it is available and how it could be commercialized. Um, but so the bit, there's a big part of our business which is built around the technology. Like all technology, you know, we're not sitting there thinking this is going to be, you know, there forever because, you know, as we move in the, in the world, technology changes and, you know, at some point things will catch up, etc. But what we're very much trying to do is be first to market or one of the first to market with, with technology, with some proprietary um, solution, uh, and be able to license that solution to produce energy. Now, the licensing part of our um, project is to basically license the technology to energy production, uh, where we get a percentage of that energy production at the end of the day. And the idea is, like I said, we don't plan to go out and deliver every project. We plan to identify and establish the projects, and then we plan to to do the drilling or the intervention work and the fabrication and the engineering of the top sides and all this sort of stuff together. But we are really the what we call the, the delivery solution. So we will be the energy uh, company that actually delivers the solution, provides the energy at the end of the day for our a technology platform, which is licensable. So we might take 10, 15% of a license of V within the energy production. But the asset itself could be owned by multiple parties, from governments to private sector to you know organizations like the MOD or the National Health or even utility businesses could own the, the assets. And what that enables us to do is very quickly scale this opportunity in multiple areas. You know, my experience in business is if you want to scale, don't carry baggage because baggage, you know, doesn't allow you to move. Uh, if you own assets, you can only own a certain amount of assets before your debt to uh, profit ratio runs out. So you, you know, you actually end up to a point where you might sit there with a balance sheet of so many assets, but after time you can't do any more because you know your debt ratio doesn't allow you to do that. Um, whereas if you facilitate the process and you work with other people to do it. You can keep going on, plugging in ideas and plugging the solutions together for other people to carry on delivering other people to own it. And that's really what Seraphie's business model is, is to really be that enabler, and, should I say, solution to deliver energy projects on a baseload opportunity everywhere and anywhere. You know, our, our sort of philosophy and slogan is really, you know, we help organizations meet their targets through geothermal solutions. And that's really our sort of go to market sort of quote that we put out there to to everyone and we have sort of three and we we obviously have some engineering work at the front end so we we can monetize uh the delivery of some of these projects through engineering studies we make revenue stream through studies we make revenue stream through project delivery which is normally on a cost plus basis and then we have our license and fee on the back of that so we've got several tiers of of um, revenue stream that are 
you know, plan to come into the business. Uh, we're still at the sort of front end of the minute through the study stuff. So we're generating revenue through engineering studies and, and that type of thing, consultancy work primarily. And that's really our sort of day-to-day bread and butter. Uh, and then as we move forward into projects, we we, we start then bringing in the license and revenue, et cetera. And, and you know, we're, we're, you know, we're only two years old now. We're in, I think, um, you know, we're quite well on the way to uh, being, you know, standing on our own two feet. Although we are, we have a strong investor base, and uh, we are still um, uh, fully, not fully, um, should I say, levelized in our return on, you know, our, our burn rate at the moment. And so, in terms of in terms of those futures and and where it sits, I mean, what what does the opportunity look like? How big is the opportunity here? I think you know. When's climate change going to end? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, the, the opportunity is, is huge. Um, you know, we have, you know, realistically, I know, you, you know, figure I'll probably, I always get shot down by numbers because people, you know, there's different, so many different numbers out there, but we're probably realistically under, still under 20% globally of, of renewable resources, really renewable resources. If you look at baseload energy, you know, we're probably well under 20% in the globe, you know, so we've still got a massive gap. We've got 80% of the, the, the global energy market fossil fuel side to actually remove. And that's a huge step. You know, there's figures. I'm a bit sort of a skeptic on the figures that come out because nobody really knows exactly what they are and people make up figures and I think consultant a lot of consultancies uh you know play with figures to suit what what they're trying to sell from one year to another whether it's wind hydrogen or whatever but you know the bottom line is is we have a massive um challenge in front of us uh we've got a huge we've got you know the way I look at it is that we've we've spent 150 years in a you know in industrial revolution with fossil fuels you know in in this world it's not going to take us any less than a hundred years to, or plus, to reverse that to a point where we are in some sort of balanced, neutral area of um, with our climate fight. So I think we've got a huge battle in front of us. Um, we're not going to achieve the net zero targets for 2050, nowhere near. I think we'll probably be well over two for two degrees before we can start making any reversal. But I think the the globe is is understanding that this is an issue. And we, the opportunity like Seraphi has is, you know, we're one of hundreds of companies. I mean, there's been 150 plus companies set up in the geothermal space in the last, you know, 12, 18 months. Not all of them are going to be probably around in the the next 12 to 18 months uh, or even beyond that. But I think the opportunity is going to be there. The opportunity to extract geothermal is going to be there or thermal energy, I call it, Um because there's there's lots of different aspects around the geo part, but whether it's you know a few meters under the ground for ground source heat pumps, or you know several kilometers, or deep geothermal, or ultra deep geothermal, you know it's it's really there's going to be different aspects of that. Some are going to work, some aren't. Some are going to be delivered quicker than others. But the thermal energy use has to be part of our energy mix. I mean, we have to get thermal energy into the energy mix um, purely because over fifty percent of our energy today is is thermally used. It's, you know, heat cooling type approaches. So, and interesting, I mean, yeah, well, we can have the debate about the 2050 date um, and so on. But I think the clear thing is that we need to get there quickly. We need to get as quick as we can. And I'm wondering what is the, uh, what do you see as the fastest path to adoption and, and of geothermal specifically? What, when, when you're looking at the market that you're in, how does it compare in terms of when you look at it vis a vis other renewable sources in terms of getting, getting to energy, but also within it, 
within the field itself, what are the opportunities that we, that we should be or that you are looking at in terms of making it happen as quickly as you can? Well, I think, I think, you know, I always sort of default back to the same, you know, reason. If you want to make a change, the only way you can do it is by having access to resource to do it. That resource invariably is, is, is funding and money. Um, you know, with, with the, with the right amount of funding and the right amount of allocation of, of injection of, of funds into a space, you're going to make it happen. I mean, we have a huge amount of discussion with investment, with the investment base around the world. Um, and everyone is looking at projects, uh, like, you know, well, uh, yeah, we, we really want to invest, but we, we really are, you know, looking at investing in projects for geothermal. You know, the, the real world is, is projects don't happen unless you have companies like us and technology and all the other things there to be able to make the projects work. And the real investment has to go into the funnel into the companies that are delivering the solutions to make projects more viable. You know, projects don't, are not going to become viable unless technology changes and step changes. We can't keep doing the same geothermal projects that we were doing 20 years ago and expect a different result. So if an investor comes to the table today and says, well, I looked at geothermal 20 years ago, but it wasn't economical because really the, the cost of drilling and the cost of this and wasn't really there, that same investor coming to the table today and expecting a change without adding any value by investing in a change of technology is not going to get a different result. So I think where we're speaking to investors and saying, yes, we understand you want to be in the projects, and yes, we want you to be in the projects with us, but to get in the projects, you need to buy a ticket on the bus to help the technology get to that project, to be able to make that project a lot more economical, a lot more efficient, so you get the best return possible out of it. And I think that applies to a lot of technologies um, that are come around the corner in different sides of the or different areas of the renewable space, whether it's battery storage, whether it's EV charging, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's whatever. But I think, you know, investors are always looking for the the future results today before they've invested in getting the technology where it needs to be. And that's really, I think, the, the, the only step change is going to make it work because the opportunities there, the, the companies with the innovation and the technology are there. Not all of them are going to work, and there will be companies that fail, and there will be technologies that fail. But if you don't fail, you don't learn either. So you have to step in that, you know, you have to move forward in that basis. We didn't get to an oil and gas business, you know, that to where we are today without failing many, many times. Some drastic fails like Piper Alpha, Exxon Valdez, these sort of things, you know, but we did learn from them process and we did make the industry a lot better from that. So, I think this is where we have to go with renewable energy and, and uh, we have to go with things like geothermal. We have to, you know, we have to be prepared to lose some money in some ways to gain a lot more money moving forward in the future. And it's interesting, uh, again, you, you touch on oil and gas and, and you kind of mentioned earlier the sort of the infrastructure and the parallels in, the, in, in approaches certainly on being subsurface. Is there, a, is there anything there in terms of looking at oil and gas assets that helps accelerate what you're trying to do in geothermal, either in assets or obviously an approach. What does that look like? Yeah, so one of our, our sort of main approaches at the moment is really looking at what we call um, existing liabilities in the oil and gas space, which be in oil and gas wells. And, uh, you know, most of the projects we are looking at are looking at repurposing those wells, existing wells, to either extract the heat out of them or primarily the heat out of them to use for heat network type systems. 
Um, with the right temperatures, we can also get power generation, although it's a lot more challenging. But, you know, pro- probably around 5% of wells that are around 10% at the high end, depending on where you are in the world. But certainly in the UK, I would say, you know, less than 5% of wells can be used for some sort of energy generation for power. Um, if you get other locations where you've got very hot wells, you know, they, that might increase to 20, 30%. But the majority of reuse of wells is going to be for heat use. And, um, you know, I think we are seeing now certainly a step change in the UK where we've got a number of well sites working with operators to use them wells for heat network or direct heat use for behind the fence, I call it behind the sort of meter type approach where you plug it into an agricultural type glass house environment or you use it for some sort of industrial process or something. Um, you know, not all of them are going to be great for going into heat networks or residential type uh, opportunities, but they can be used for commercial behind the sort of wire, behind the, behind the meter type approach. Uh, in the US, it's a bit more challenging. The US is very much focused on, you know, power generation all the time. They're very power focused uh, in that sort of power generation area and don't really see heat as being a sort of transition fuel. Whereas, you know, they just look at, well, power generation is done from gas and gas provides the heat as well. So, but, you know, we have to, flip that change of mentality because if we're going to remove gas from the from the energy mix because of its uh, carbon uh, footprint you know you can't have both of them so we have to sort of change the dynamics but in general you know assets like oil and gas wells present a really good opportunity to what we call flip the liability of a decommissioning potential so there's a decommissioning liability on an oil and gas well um, we believe that that can be transition to be an asset rather than be a liability, meaning that you cease the use of the well for oil and gas production, you isolate the well from a point of view of its uh, oil and gas liability, and then you use the hole in the ground effectively to extract heat to produce clean energy. And at the end of that day, when the well is no longer any good, you then just fill the well up as you would normally and just turn the greenfield or turn the land back to greenfield again. So, or, or you drill more wells around it and carry on producing, you know, more, more heat. But the bottom line is that we can also do that with other infrastructure like coal fired power plants, gas fired power plants, diesel generator stations and these types of things and oil fired power plants. You know, by changing the feedstock to geothermal, you still have that infrastructure, you still have them transmission systems, you still have all them customers at the end of the line that could receive clean energy through an existing transmission system. And uh, these are something else we're looking at, and that that hasn't really caught on from an idea point of view as as probably as as quick as the oil and gas repurposing side. And I think it's something that we really do need to look at when you think about how how much large infrastructure is around the globe, which is fossil fuel driven, that could be quickly converted um, to be able to produce base load clean energy. Probably not the same amount as it was producing, maybe 50%, but it can still produce something, meaning you can still have use the existing asset and you're not creating more carbon footprint by building more infrastructure. How does that all feed into your vision of where Serafi is going over the next few years? Where do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, we've got a very clear strategy to, I mean, we, we want to scale through going to an IPO um, at some point in the future, 2025, 2027, and we've got a plan of energy um, banks or energy books uh, in projects before they're to get there, and uh, we're well on track to do that. And, 
you know, we by by going to IPO and AZ will hopefully enable us then to scale significantly um, globally at that point. And uh, you know, like I said, we want to be the an energy company of choice that people go to for baseload energy. You know, we I think we've already been quite successful in create, creating quite a um, a good brand, and um, you know, and uh, a, a, certainly a, a brand that people. Uh, want to learn about and hear about, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we will continue with that with that process. And you know, we want to build a, a people's business. I mean, we have an inf- we have a you know a large selection of our company employees are um, our shareholders, and uh, we want to continue to grow that. We want to be an energy company which uh, people and ESG focused, and not just a energy company that's just going to make a lot of money for you know, large hedge funds and, and things like that. We want to be a company that actually for sure makes money because we need investors, we need stakeholders behind us. We want to generate revenue. We have to generate revenue to grow. We have to generate profits to make us um, scalable. But at the same time, you have to do that sustainably and ethically and do it in a way that, um, you know, is, is slightly different. And, and we are, uh, I think, a slightly different energy business. Uh, I think we're uh, we see ourselves as a bit like having the, the app, uh, which other companies can then, you know, uh, use to generate the energy. So I mean, we call it, there's a bit like an Uber model where we, we don't actually own the cars and the drivers. We don't want to own the assets and we don't want to own the bits at the end of it, but we own the, the technology and the app to make it happen. And this is really where we see Seraphine moving forward as that, that sort of business model moving forward in the future. The Uber of geothermal. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's something we've, yeah, something uh, I'm sort of giving Uber, Uber more of a punt than Seraphy here, but because I mean, people will probably shoot me down for using the name Uber in some countries, but one would venture that the approach that you're adopting is slightly more ethical than a lot of the rep that they have. So. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, the, the, the approach is definitely ethical. I mean, we're very ESG focused. Um, we very much have that sort of ethics in the company. And uh, we want to do the right thing. And, you know, uh, you can do both. You can, you know, create a successful business with a healthy, you know, balance sheet bottom line and be ethical um, if you start off with the right foot, you know, the footings to do that. And I think we have set that business up to do that. We are we are very much focused on that that basis. You know? Yeah, no, no, and absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, if, if if you have a mission in business and it's a good mission to create something better in the world, it will need cash flow and profit. It's, those aren't dirty words. That's Those will have to be there in order to make it create the impact that it wants to create. So, so no, uh, fantastic. Carl, thank you so much for making the time. I really enjoyed the uh, the conversation, not just in terms of learning on geothermal, but just looking at the the leadership style, the business model, the mission you're on. If people want to find you guys, I mean, who, who should be looking to find you guys and how would they go about finding you? I think yeah, we're quite easy to find because I think we, we, we appear on, on most platforms. But um, yeah, I mean, generally reach out to myself um, through LinkedIn or one of these types of areas. And uh, yeah, I mean, generally we're looking for collaborative partners and that can be, you know, companies with other innovation technology, companies that can deliver solutions that work with us and, and absolutely investors, uh, sustainable investors that are looking to, literally buy into the next generation of energy that's come around the corner in a sustainable way and uh, you know if they're true to their word and they you know they want to be in a, get on a on a mission ours is a mission to be on for sure brilliant carl thank you so much for making the time thanks very much 
Thanks for joining me on this episode of The Karmic Catalyst. Please subscribe if you want to hear more about companies building values and purpose into the heart of business. If you're more of a reader, I do send out two-minute reads on leading business for profit and purpose, which you can find at beyondthequarter.com slash bitesize. Finally, if you'd like to work with me directly, contact me through LinkedIn. There's nobody else with my name there. for joining me on this episode of The Karmic Capitalist. Please rate and subscribe if you want to hear more about companies doing good business and the nitty-gritty of how they got there. I'd also love to have a conversation with you if you lead a small to medium-sized business with 10 to 100 employees and values are important to you. If that's you, come join me and a handful of other CEOs in one of my weekly thought-provoking conversations about how to make your strategy and purpose happen. We discuss and workshop practicalities, processes, strategies, and the human nuances of scaling up, giving you more time to do strategic things and even what those strategic things might be. Find details at btq.link slash make strategy real.